Welcome to Beat Cancer, the official podcast of the UC Davis Comprehensive Cancer Center. Thanks for joining us today as we have in-depth discussions of the science, research, and advancements taking place at our National Cancer Institute-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center. I'm Chris Joyce. And I'm Stephanie Wynn. We will also examine proactive approaches to cancer prevention, and most importantly, how we are breaking barriers to beat cancer in our community and beyond. Joining us today is Dr. Rebecca Ann Brooks. Professor Brooks is the Division and Fellowship Director for Gynecologic Oncology. She specializes, in other words, in treating cancers affecting women's reproductive systems. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Brooks. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So September is both Uterine and Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Why is it important that we bring attention to these uh, cancers affecting women? Well, I think um, I think for a number of reasons. First of all, they are um, more common than women oftentimes think. And I think um, oftentimes the warning symptoms for ovarian cancer are pretty subtle. And um, it's really important that women know what to watch out for and what to bring up with their primary care providers or others. And I think um, I think we've been a little slower in gaining some of the momentum that the breast cancer movement has. So we want to make sure that um, that these cancers are, um, are really getting the attention they deserve. Well, what are some of the signs and the symptoms that uh, that women should be aware of or paying attention to when it comes to uh, to both of these cancers? Um, great question. So I think for uh, uterine cancer is a little bit more straightforward. I think anytime a woman who's gone through menopause has vaginal bleeding, that is concerning and should always be evaluated. Um, I definitely see, definitely see women who are told, you know, gosh, maybe it's just the aspirin that you're on. That is not the case. I think anytime somebody has um, postmenopausal bleeding, that should always be looked at. Um, sometimes if a woman goes through menopause a lot later than average, that can also be a little bit um, concerning for potentially being regular bleeding. So the average age of menopause is typically around um, 51. Um, but if you have a woman who's 56, 57, still bleeding, you know, that really probably deserves um, evaluation. Um, there's not really a well-defined um, like cut point at wh- after which age that is alarming. I think sometimes your family history can also be um, uh, telling. Um, but vaginal bleeding is really a concerning sign. Also, we're seeing more and more women who are young who are being diagnosed with, and diagnosed with endometrial cancer. Mm. Um, we do know that um, one of the risk factors for endometrial cancer is obesity because everybody has some fat underneath the skin and the more um, fat tissue you have that makes estrogen that can cause the lining inside the uterus to, um, to grow. And so, um, so I think if a woman is young and having a regular bleeding, especially if they're um, overweight, uh, it's worth having, you know, having a talk with your OBGYN to see if that's something that's normal for you or should you know, deserve more attention. When we come to warning signs for ovarian cancer, those are a little bit different, different, and a little bit tricky, just because they're um, uh, they're not very specific. So, I think um, in general, we talk about bloating, um, we talk about decreased appetite, you know, possibly some pelvic pain, um, and one of the incredibly frustrating things about ovarian cancer is that it's just difficult to detect early. And that's really an area where um, there's a lot of research going on right now about different biomarkers, different proteomics, um, you know, symptom indices, how can we try and detect this disease early um, when the prognosis is still better. And I know the average age is typically uh, for both cancers in the early 60s, correct? But you you hear of ovarian cancer uh, impacting younger women too, it seems. And um, 
it's a frustrating experience, right? Some of these women I've talked to have gone in to see a doctor several times um, and had their symptoms not ignored, but attributed to other things because bloating, constipation, back pain, there's a variety, right, of, of uh, digestive disorders, other things that could be causing those symptoms. So what should women do? And how early should you be concerned? How, how young should you be concerned? Um, you know, that's a tricky question. I think um, we do know that genetics also plays a really important role. And um, one of the great things about the genetic counseling movement and things is that we're identifying more and more women who have genes that put them at risk of getting this cancer. And by, you know, if we can identify what's in your DNA, that's going to increase your risk of getting ovarian cancer, we can do something to help um, screen those women. So the reason I bring that up is because if you do have a genetic mutation that puts you at higher risk of getting um, breast or ovarian cancer, and I'm talking mostly about the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, although there are a number of other ones out there um, that we're also discovering and that are being included in panels now. If you're a woman who has a gene like that, then the average age of ovarian cancer might be much younger. Um, so, so I think anytime you know a patient feels like they're not necessarily being heard, you can always push your primary to consider getting a pelvic ultrasound um, or you know you know see your OBGYN doctor, um, talk with your primary more. Um, there's not really a magic age necessarily at which the risk you know, develop, is, is there and isn't there, but just, it's always important for patients to feel like their voices are being heard. And how, you know, for women, um, how do you advocate for yourself? Um, you said ask for a pelvic ultrasound, anything else? What about the blood test? Is that something that most women should be asking for? Um, not necessarily. I think CA-125 is typically the marker that everybody um, talks about for ovarian cancer. And it's a, a it's it's a good marker for advanced disease. So about 80% of the time, um, if a woman has advanced ovarian cancer, the CA-125 will be elevated. And that is a number that we follow um, throughout their disease course going forward to make sure that the cancer is going away and that we can detect it early if it comes back. Um, but CA-125 is also very nonspecific. And lots of things can cause that number to be elevated. So endometriosis, um, being pregnant, having fibroids, um, uh, anything that causes inflammation of the lining inside the abdominal cavity can really cause that number to go high. I've seen women with heart failure or liver failure with that number in the thousands. Um, And so it can really trigger a lot of anxiety for patients. So, um, and also there have been studies in um, in the UK and elsewhere looking at you know, how much do we help women if we check a CA-125 on everyone routinely? Um, And in the end, we wind up causing a lot of patient anxiety because we have elevated test markers that everyone gets concerned about, and we do more tests and possibly unnecessary surgeries that can result in complications. So I think CA-125 is a a very helpful test when used in the right setting. Um, But I don't think that it is a test that all women should be getting. Um, Of course, if you have an adnexal mass or an ovarian mass or um, you know, you have some of these symptoms for ovarian cancer, that might be a very different situation, but it um, it really depends on the whole clinical picture. You'd mentioned um, being overweight as one of the uh, the possible contributing factors um, to, was it ovarian cancer or was that uterine cancer? I'm sorry. Uterine cancer. Uterine cancer. Well, are there other, are there other risk factors that come into play or is it just, is it really kind of genetics that 
with with both of these cancers, I guess more so is like, are there any any things that we can do to prevent this? You know, from um, from a physical standpoint, from a nutritional or exercise or just lifestyle. Um. So when it comes to uterine cancer, basically. Most and by uterine cancer, I'm really referring to endometrial cancer. Okay. Um, there are a few different kinds of uterine cancer that can form. One is, um, you know, the most common is when we're talking about endometrial cancer, which is the lining inside of the uterus, and that's much more common. There are other kinds of uterine cancers, such as the sarcomas or um, aggressive muscle tumors of the uterus, which are a completely different disease and have um, and are are less, less common, uh, fortunately. But kind of pivoting and focusing on endometrial cancer a little bit, basically anything that causes um, the lining inside the uterus to be exposed to extra estrogen is really what causes, you know, growth eventually a precancer and then cancer to form. Um, so that can be estrogen through, we talked about obesity being um, a culprit. Um, when women are placed on um, uh, estrogen replacement therapy and it's estrogen only. So anytime a woman has a uterus in place, um, they should really be on a combination of estrogen and progesterone. Otherwise, the estrogen that you take as hormone replacement can give you cancer. Hmm. Um, when we look at estrogen from other sources, so a polycystic ovarian syndrome, and, you know, some ovarian tumors. Um, those can also cause uh, endometrial cancer. And genetics is important. I think Lynch syndrome is something that we're also becoming more aware of and getting a better understanding of. Um, Lynch syndrome had historically been attributed more to colon cancer, but can sometimes run neck and neck with endometrial cancer for what's the more common cancer that the patients get. So um, the genetics definitely can play a role. Um we, even though the estrogen-driven type of uterine cancer is um, is the more common type, there are also uh, endometrial cancers that can develop, um, oftentimes in older women, from um, genetic mutations within the tumor itself, and so that's another uh, kind of driving force. So let's say you're diagnosed um, at UC Davis. We have some leading-edge technology uh, to treat uh, ovarian and uterine cancer, and you're you're deploying these techniques, right? You have become an expert at robotic surgery, uh, and and talk about the difference this is making with our patients. Um, so robotic surgery, or really any kind of minimally invasive surgery, is luckily become. Um, common. And we are definitely a center that does uh, a ton of that. And it really results in a lot of benefits for patients as far as recovery goes. Um, One of the reasons why I like robotic surgery is just because the dexterity that you can accomplish with the instrumentation um, is really very precise and allows for difficult and intricate dissections if we are concerned about lymph nodes being involved or preserving critical structures. Um, We've also moved towards sentinel lymph node um, assessments in endometrial cancer, which is really great. We used to do full staging dissections and put women through, um, you know, more time under anesthesia, much higher risk of lymphedema or long-term leg swelling. And now that we have moved towards sentinel lymph nodes, sort of like breast cancer does, or if we inject dye into the cervix and see where, which node the, the dye maps to, we can potentially avoid doing a full lymph node dissection. So that's another one of the technologies that we're utilizing here at UC Davis and um, that have become much more um, uh, com- commonplace throughout the specialty, um, which is great. What are, what are some of the other uh, treatments that are available or that you, uh, that you employ? Well, for, um, 
for uterine cancer, typically surgery is the uh, preferred upfront um, approach. Mm. Um, for ovarian cancer, it really depends a little bit on the patient's um, status and on what a patient can can kind of. But what kind of treatment makes the most sense for the patient? So for ovarian cancer, we look at a combination of where the disease is. Is this, um, is this a patient who hopefully is found with an early cancer and we can take the mass out and, um, you know, assess the lymph nodes and other areas to make sure that, um, that the cancer hopefully hasn't spread or if it has that we identify that so we can attack it um, the way it needs to be. For more advanced disease, um, we individualized treatment based on a patient's status and where the cancer is. So if a woman is um, in good shape and can tolerate a, a large surgery, then we prefer to do a um, primary, what we call the tumor debulking, which is really just removing all of the visible cancer when we can. Um, if a patient is um, not able to undergo a big surgery due to other medical problems, recent blood clots, heart disease, um, weakness, et cetera, then we'll sometimes give chemotherapy first um, to shrink the cancer and then go back in to do surgery in a, you know, in, in a few cycles um, when the cancer shrunk. And we also do that for cancer if it's not amenable to disease being fully resected. So um, just to say that a little bit more articulately, I think if, if we have a patient who's um, cancer is in places that we can't surgically remove, such as involving lymph nodes around the blood supply to the liver or um, involving too large of a surface of the intestines, um, then we will give chemotherapy in those situations. If we think that we can go in and remove all the cancer up front, then that's, that has some benefits. Um, but it's really a matter of individualizing the treatment for the individual patients. I think one of the nice things here at UC Davis is that we have a really nice um, comprehensive team. We have a expert um, gynecologic pathologist, Dr. Tony Carnesis, who's um, well-published and has done a lot of research in ovarian cancer. Um, we have uh, one of our physicians is a palliative care um, boarded. We work very closely with um, uh, the supportive oncology team and try and really um, partner together with them to help treat the patient's disease, but also help to treat the patient as a person throughout the trajectory of their disease and really um, help support patients um, psychologically, help with any of the symptoms related to the disease. So supportive oncology or what has been called palliative care in the past is really so much more than um, than just palliation. It's really a matter of trying to optimize somebody's, a patient's um, uh, quality of life while they're um, going through this journey together with us. And of course, one of the other benefits of being a UC Davis Health uh, patient is this access to our clinical trials. Do you see some promising uh, clinical trials where um, patients um, who, you know, have very advanced disease are really uh, getting some help? Yeah, I think I'm so glad you brought up clinical trials because that I think that is a, um, you know, crucial component of all of this. Anytime a woman is a candidate for clinical trials that always is definitely worth considering. Um, we do have a number of clinical trials open here at UC Davis, and we're constantly um, looking at what to open, what makes the most sense for our patient population, where is there a need. Um, the field has really expanded quite impressively within the last, um, gosh, 
several years. Certainly things are different now than they were when I was a trainee. And it's, it's wonderful to see how far um, medical therapies are, um, are moving forward. So we now have um, PARP inhibitors, which are an oral class of medications, which work through the um, DNA repair pathways and work um, even better in patients who have specific um, genetic mutations, either in their blood or in the tumor, like BRCA1 or BRCA2, for example. Um, so those have really um, come up and really have changed the prognosis for some of these patients. So for example, um, we're seeing patients cancer-free for at least five years, possibly longer, if you go on these um, class of medications uh, and have that mutation. Um, so that's one example of some of the ways that the field has taken forward. We also have a whole class of targeted agents and, um, uh, you know, anti-angiogenesis drugs. So, so drugs that block, um, cancer cells from recruiting new blood vessels. Um, immunotherapy hasn't been quite as exciting in, um, ovarian cancer by itself, but we're trying to see which patients have the right, um, proteins expressed in their tumor who might benefit and how to couple that with other classes of novel, novel drugs to really, um, change the uh, change the face of this disease it's very promising what's the best way for a patient to find out about a cl clinical trial or to even gain access to one um well i think you know here in, at uc davis we are um very fortunate to be part of the comprehensive cancer center and we have a um, scope program where we're working with doctors in the community to try and identify patients who are candidates for um, clinical trials that we have open i think the website is always an option mm -hmm. um, and i think for patients who want to do their own um, research and look themselves the clinicaltrials.gov website is uh, very comprehensive though though a lot to manage but i think here at uc davis we're always happy to um, explore what clinical trials options might be um might be possible perfect so just bringing it up with with the oncologist or physician yeah and if, if, like you said absolutely i think first and foremost bringing it up with your um with your oncologist because um I think most oncologists really value the um, power that clinical trials provide for patients and for providers to really not only try and identify, um, you know, new, new and other options for treatment right now, but also to try and help see how we can move the disease, you know, forward for other women in the future too. What makes a, a good candidate for a clinical trial? It can be very different. So, um, most, you know, clinical trials typically have certain enrollment criteria that we look at, and that will be um, specific to a oftentimes stage of disease um, and to the number of prior therapies that patients have received. Um, so typically, once women have gotten a number of different kind of chemotherapy drugs, for example, um, then the clinical trials that they're eligible for might be smaller just because of the um, ways that the clinical trials are conducted. Um, but uh, so stage and uh, cancer cell type are some of the criteria. I think in, in broader strokes, a, a patient's what we call functional status or strength is also important because the last thing we want to do is harm anyone by going on a clinical trial. And clinical trials are great, but they might not make sense for everyone. Um, so we want to make sure that patient's strong enough to undergo the therapy being evaluated. Otherwise, it's not worth the potential risk. Um, we also want to make sure that patients have a, have a really good handle on what the clinical trial is about because, uh, you know, to do the right thing and do justice to the patients, we really need truly informed consent so patients understand why the trial is being done, what the drug does, um, the risks associated, um, because even though clinical trials are fantastic and do open new doors for patients, um, 
it's important to understand potential risks with drugs that are investigational and that we're still trying to um, determine the best, you know, setting for. And as an NCI designated comprehensive cancer center, we have access to these phase one clinical trials that are are really taking a drug straight from the lab, right? And testing them on humans for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Typically, phase one drugs, just like you said, our phase one clinical trials are for um, therapies that are very early in development. And so we're still trying to figure out uh, the safety of the drug, how well the drug is tolerated, sometimes dosing of the drug, um, and hoping to find a signal. Um, And that goes up to phase two and then phase three trials, which are typically large um, trials with um, oftentimes, you know, two or more kinds of therapies where we're really trying to compare one thing or another, but in a much larger setting. So um, absolutely being part of um, the cancer center here, we uh, are fortunate to have a very strong phase one program where we have a lot of those novel drugs and can learn from other disease sites, especially as we're starting to understand more how the molecular basis for certain kinds of cancers really drives the cancer behavior. You know, what can we learn from lung cancer or from, you know, breast cancer or from melanoma about um, how some of these mutations work and about some of the drugs that they've had success with um, in those disease sites. What about the research uh, that you're doing, Dr. Brooks? Because we know that you're, along with being a clinician, you're also a, a top researcher in this area. What or we're what type of research would you like to be doing? A lot of my research has um, been, I guess I've, I've done a couple different things. Um, one is um, some outcomes-based research looking at different databases and trying to better understand disease behavior and um, uh, disparities in care. For example, I just um, worked on a, a project with um, our um, senior fellow, Dr. Nancy Wynn, who graduated and uh, was fortunate enough, uh, we we're lucky enough to have her stay on as faculty here, looking at vulvar cancer, which is um, not one of the cancers we're focusing on today, but one of the um, much less common gynecologic cancers and um, looking at the NCD database to identify that basically patients who have um, delays in um, how long their radiation takes to to be delivered have worse prognosis. And, you know, I think that uh, underscores the importance to access to care and um, making sure that patients are um, in settings where they can sustainably uh, receive these therapies. Um, So some population-based studies, again, to understand um, how these cancers behave and how to um, better apply our treatments to our our patients. Um, I've also done some some work looking at genetic differences between um, individuals and what puts patient, is there any genetic basis to who develops metastatic disease and cancer and trying to see if we can develop that into any kind of um, marker for um, disease behavior and for treatment options. So um, a few different things. And um, I also find a lot of satisfaction in our trainees because our trainees are really the future of um medical care. And um, the people that are in training now are the people who are going to take care of uh, me and my loved ones. And um, and I think uh, it's important to invest um, in the amazing physicians that, that are coming up through the ranks and um, who uh, find as much joy as I do in taking care of the women afflicted by these disease. I just had one more question, <clears throat> Dr. Brooks, and that is, this is really, these cancers exemplify some of the challenges we have with, with health equity, correct? I mean, you're, you're seeing a higher incidence in uh, black women, for instance, that um, is, is pretty dramatic, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that dovetails into a couple of different comments about, um, I think, um, 
disparities in health equity and, and gynecologic cancers. I think uh, cervical cancer, for example, is you know the ultimate disease that we should be able to identify and detect early most of the time. And the caveat being that sometimes cancers that are hiding up in the cervix might not be um, detected quite as easily on a standard pap smear. That's where the HPV test is is that is that much more important. But um, unfortunately, even though the, the HPV vaccine has really um, brought down the numbers of early cancer cases that we're seeing, we're still are seeing a lot of advanced cervical cancer and women who are um, have either not been in care for whatever reason, uh, oftentimes it's because they're taking care of their loved ones. So, um, you know, a woman's been taking care of her parents or taking care of her children and hasn't had the time to pay attention to her own health care um, that's what's leading to a lot of the advanced cancers that we're seeing now. So I think, um, or people who are in areas where they don't have good access to care or for whatever reason. Um, so yes, absolutely. Um, health equity is a, plays a role in gynecologic cancers, um, or in women who, you know, aren't seeing a doctor regularly to know that their postmenopausal bleeding is, you know, is not normal. And they've been having bleeding for years and now have unfortunately advanced disease in a situation where it could have been detected or, and um, where the likelihood of cure was was higher. Um, there is also more data um, evolving and I think thankfully more attention being paid to the fact that um, black women do have a worse prognosis, especially with uterine cancer. Um, I was just involved in a project um, between the Society of Gynecologic uh, Oncology and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, where we um, did an, a um, broad sweep of the evidence related to uterine cancer to try and um, educate primary care physicians better about what to watch out for, the treatment for the disease, um, and in doing so, found really striking disparities and outcomes between black women and white women. And, um, you know, even after controlling for stage and grade, it seems that there's access issues, but also um, different um, possibly biology of the disease in some ways. So um, we, we found enough data about that to really write a separate paper and are um, trying to focus now on how to, um, what we can do about that as a, as a specialty. That's great. Uh, do you have any uh, anything that you'd like to bring light to that we haven't maybe discussed uh, so far today? We kind of touched a little bit on the genetics of um, ovarian cancer and how it plays a role, but I think um, now that we have such good ways to test women for um, with genetic testing to try and see if um, you know if they're at higher risk of the disease, so I think just make sure that you're doctor knows about your family history. And if you have a, um, you know, if your mom's had ovarian cancer or um, if you've got, you know, women, especially if it's premenopausal breast cancer or ovarian cancer, um, really speaking up about that to see if you're somebody, see if you're a patient who should undergo genetic testing. Um, Because if we can identify um, patients who are at risk of this disease, then we can really do things to help prevent the cancer from happening. So for example, if, um, if a woman has a BRCA1 or um, BRCA2 mutation, we'll talk about doing a risk-reducing surgery to remove the tubes and, or, or, tubes and ovaries um, when childbearing is completed or at an age that makes sense based on a balanced discussion with your doctor. So really, I think paying attention to, um, uh, to genetics and seeing how we can stay ahead of, um, of the disease before it even starts. Um, and I think um, other other kind of take-home points. Um, if you, 
make sure that you're talking to your doctor about your concerns. And if you feel like you aren't being listened to, then, um, then don't hesitate to advocate for yourself. Um, I think, um, and it's important to always kind of have a good relationship with your doctor and trust that the information that you're getting is, um, is accurate. There are a number of really great resources also on the, um, uh, Foundation for Women's Cancer um, webpage are um, out there to really help empower women um, to know as much as they can about um, about these diseases, both if you're affected of it and also um, to know what to watch out for. We are so fortunate to have your expertise at UC Davis Health. Thank you so much. It was really an honor to um, be here um, with you guys today. And thank you for taking the time to pay attention to these important diseases. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you for tuning in and listening today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us directly at beatcancer at ucdavis.edu. Beat Cancer is a production of the UC Davis Comprehensive Cancer Center. For more information on our NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center, please visit health.ucdavis.edu slash cancer. <laughs>